This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only sports program from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Joe Porter. In the program this week, we hear from the New Zealand Rugby Union's Chief Executive Steve Chu about the challenges facing the Blues and Auckland rugby. We talk to New Zealand's sole Olympic weightlifter Richie Patterson about his second tilt at an Olympic Games. We chat to returning warrior Nathan Friend about the club's chances of forcing their way back into the NRL's top eight. And we investigate Sky TV's monopoly over sports coverage in New Zealand. The Blues Super Rugby franchise is searching for a new coach along with the help of the New Zealand Rugby Union with a decision to be made at the end of July. So far they've received more than a dozen applications with NZIU Chief Executive Steve Chu saying several will get interviews in the coming weeks. The embattled Blues have fallen to their worst ever Super Rugby record this season under coach Pat Lamb, forcing the franchise to advertise the head coaching role midway through the season. The Blues' problems are indicative of the wider trouble surrounding Auckland rugby. They have the biggest player pool in the country by a long shot but have failed to translate that into success on the field. They also face a constant threat from rugby league scouts from the Warriors and the Australian NRL sides who regularly raid the Auckland first 15s for talent. Chu spoke to the media about the many issues facing Auckland rugby and the NZRU's view on the progress being made in the Blues coach recruitment process. We'll have uh, a couple of people on the panel who will uh, shortlist and select the Blues coach, as we always do, and hopefully, as as normal, um, that group will um, come to a consensus decision as to who the best person is to take them into the future. Uh, Steve, how many uh, applicants did you have for that job? I haven't got the final number in front of me, Wynn, but uh, I think it was over a dozen, and there's certainly some some names there that you would be uh, reasonably confident should get an interview. Is it a priority for you guys, Steve, given you know their their problems this year and given you know uh, the, you know the um, yep. resources they have? Yes, it's a priority. It would be a priority replacing any of the coaches, frankly, because the season now there is no sort of there's no stop point. The, the Blues need to be contracting players um, as we speak, um, and they are, um, and so we need to move quickly. And it would be the same if if any of the franchises were looking for a replacement. Don't you see that as a bit? The horse before the or the cup for the horse, so Steve, contracting players who, for whatever reason, a new coach may not want. Yeah, well, there's that danger, but you've got to remember that the um, franchise is more than just the the one coach. Um, and the other problem one is that if they don't um, secure some players on contract, then there'll be no there'll be no horses to pull the cart because they'll all be contracted to other either other franchises or they'll they'll be too nervous about their futures and they'll leave New Zealand to play somewhere else. So, yeah, it's not, look, it's not ideal, but that, unfortunately it's one of the things we face all the time. In fact, mm. our own contracting um, program is subject to the same doubt. You know, our all-back coaches are only appointed for two years, and my contracting team are trying to convince some players to sign right through to 2015. There are some players that you can sign with some confidence that any coach is going to want in the mix, 
and there are others that are a bit, bit riskier, so you've just got to make those decisions with some judgment. Steve, I mean, the, if, oh, if you look boy. at their record over the last 10 years, it's pretty abysmal apart from one or two exceptions, and, and it seems like they have a real issue with player development and retention in this region and don't seem to be winning the battle against other codes. So I guess that would be a concern for rugby? Uh, yeah, no, well, it is. But they are the only city in the country where they've got a battle with other codes. Um, okay. But they can't attract, they cannot seem to attract any rugby players to want and come to come and play for them. So you have to ask yourself why that is. Yeah, well, yeah, that's, that's true. But, but frankly, for me, the bigger question is, they should be able to develop enough players so that they should be a net exporter of players like they were in the 90s, actually. That's, that's more of the issue for us than whether they've got an environment that attracts players. Steve, is, is there a concern, though, that the first 15 competition in Auckland, there does appear to be a mentality for some of those players that they play first 15 rugby, they get a rugby league contract? Is that an area where you may need to look a little bit further, particularly in the Auckland region? Yeah, it is. Look, and, and there's no question that we see Auckland as an important uh, part of our future strategy, and we haven't shared you the details with you of that strategic thinking. But Auckland actually has now been identified as a goal, and it's not it's not the Blues or the Auckland Rugby Union; it is the wider Auckland uh, city. So you've got you've now got a super city. You've got some venue and facility questions that have been asked up there. There is a unique challenge because the Warriors and to a lesser extent the breakers are in their face and competition. You've got uh, 90% of New Zealand's population growth in the next uh, 15 years is going to be in Auckland. A high percentage of that population growth is going to be either Pacific Island or Asian. You've got a whole lot of things that we need to get ahead around, and we will be doing um, some very careful thinking around how we ensure that we win Auckland like most businesses in this country need to do. So I, I don't, I'm not in any way um, shying away from the fact that we have challenges for rugby in that particular broader metropolitan area, but we're no different actually than, than anyone else in this country that if you don't get Auckland right, you, you've got some real issues. Specifically around the, the recruitment of young rugby players to rugby league, it's quite a challenging issue for us actually because we will not embark on the practice of enticing parents to sign their kids at an early age for a paltry amount of money or even worse, things in kind. Uh, we've got a, uh, a, a greater uh, commitment to uh, a, a providing an environment where a kid will have um, a long-term future in our game. But that will mean we will lose some kids because the very nature of the social and demographic and economic background is that they're likely to take the small return more quickly. Our competitive advantage has always been that if you play our game, you have an opportunity to travel the world, play a game that will lead you to an all-black jersey, whereas if you go and play rugby league in Australia, that's what you're going to do. You're going to play rugby league in Australia. But we can't and won't enter into a contracting war with young kids who are still at school. The outside of our first 15 competition is that we've got some of the, the best first 15 um, and best rugby schools in the rugby world in that city, and we've got to be able to build on that advantage. But the other thing that is worth noting, and so it is of interest, is that and it was a very, a very topical conversation because we had it over the weekend. One, one of the interesting things to have a look at is probably of, if you were to go through a process and say who are the 10 best-run clubs in New Zealand right now, you'd probably end up with at least six or eight of them being in the greater Auckland region. Ponsonby, College Rifles, North Shore. There's some fantastic community rugby setups up there. So 
I don't think we're too far away from getting it right, but clearly it is a piece of work that we need to be involved in and will be. It's not just about the Blues on-field performance this year. Steve Chu. The Auckland weightlifter Richie Patterson will compete in his second Olympics after being confirmed in the New Zealand team for the London Games. The 29-year-old won a silver medal in the 77kg class at the Delhi Commonwealth Games, but he's stacked on some beef and will compete in the 85kg class at the Olympics. He broke six national records this year, as well as winning both the Oceania and Commonwealth Championships in June, but he concedes those competitions simply can't compare with the Olympic Games and he's looking for a top 10 finish in London. I spoke to Patterson who says a big thanks must go out to fellow New Zealand weightlifter Tavita Nalu who had to successfully lift 157 kilograms with a torn hamstring at the recent Oceania Champs in order for Patterson to qualify for the London Games. Yeah, it's a remarkable story um, from the Oceanias. Um, the New Zealand team in general did amazing over there. Um, a lot of younger lifters stepped up, and, and on that last day, Tavita to um, lift through the pain that he did to secure a quota spot was amazing, and it's been well publicised and, and one of those Olympic stories that will be remembered, you'd say. Mid 20th position at Beijing, and then obviously silver medalist in Delhi. How much of a step up is the Olympics from the Commonwealth Games? It's a huge step up. Um, obviously, I take a lot though from the Commonwealth Games experiences that I've had. I've had two Commonwealth Games and one Olympics under my belt now, so I go in now very confident onto the, um, you say the, the elite stage and um, perform. So it's it's a learning curve that you take from those those um, experiences. And uh, I'm, I'm really confident and, and that I'll produce a good result in London. Yeah. And what makes it such a step up? Is it just the level of competition that you have to face at the Olympics or is it a bit of the grandeur of the event as well coming into play? Oh, it's the level of competition. There's a lot, a lot of um, stronger nations and weightlifting coming through. You've got your Asian countries, China. You've got your, all your ex-Eastern Bloc countries. Um, so the weightlifting powerhouses come on board. Um, at the Commonwealth Games, the, le- the level is a little bit lower. Um, so it's, it's more competitive for New Zealand, but when we step up um, to the Olympics, it's, it's game on. <laughs> and are you a genuine medal chance, do you think, in London? Uh, Be- Beijing, obviously, first Olympics, it was a big learning curve for me. It's, a, it's quite a daunting experience, your first Olympics. Um, so now I go into this quite confident. I've been there, I've done that before. I've, I've lifted on the, the main stage. So going into London, I'll, I'll look after my own performance and see where that places me. I'm in great shape, so... Um, who knows on the day where I'll place. It's quite easy to determine um, whether or not you're going to be a medal contender or not. So I'm, I'm looking at pushing that top 16 and then the top 10 um, if I can produce my good results. How much does it come down to an on-the-day performance for you? Obviously you prepare the same for every event, but how much does it come into nerves on the day, energy on the day, things like that, those variables that you can never, I guess, account for? It's It's basically weightlifting you've just described it um we train i train very heavy every week i'm doing max trainings every friday so more often than not i've attempted weights larger than i'm going to attempt at the olympics um i've snatched 160 in training i've cleaned 195 in training um so to produce that on the competition stage you've got to take in all the variables um your warm-up has to go right your head has to be in the right position you have to be focused so there's a lot of um, element of you're stronger, you know you can lift it in the competition scene, but at the same time you've got to get your head in the right space and, and, and really be in the zone. And you've stacked on a bit of beef this time round, is that going to help you? 
Yeah, um, I was 77 kilos in Beijing, so now I'm an 85 kilo lifter, and I'm actually weighing 89 at the moment, so I'll bring myself down, but um, body just strength went through the roof, um, legs are squatting huge weights, shoulders are good, body handling, training a lot better, so less niggly injuries and stuff like that, so uh, I'm really stoked about my body weight at the moment and, and, and the condition I'm in, it's I'm in a great mindset going to London. Yeah, we're about the same height. I weigh 67 kilos, so there must be a bit of power in that body of yours. Yeah, I hide it in the pants. <laughs> Can you just explain a little bit about or between the two disciplines, clean and snatch, and which one do you think is your favourite event? Um, so the snatch is basically a movement of lifting the barbell above your head in one movement. Um, it's often described as the fastest movement in sport. Um, you're extending and, and catching the bar very, very rapidly. Um, and the clean and jerk is from obviously the ground to the shoulder and then you reset and drive the bar overhead with your legs um, and securing it above your head. Um, I'm definitely a clean and jerk person. I'm, I'm a very strong lifter, you'd say, um, whereas snatch is a very fast, technical, efficient lift. Um, I tend to use, I'm quite good with my brute strength. Um, my best clean and jerk in competition is 193 kilograms, and I've cleaned and put above my head 200 um, in competition but dropped it behind me. So that's my goal to throw that above my head in London as well. So um, there's not many in the world that can keep up with that. So that's, a, that's, that's my, um, my money maker, you'd say. <laughs> and how do you psych yourself up before you go out there for a lift? Is, is there any slapping of the head or listening to heavy metal? I'm actually quite a calm. Um, some people have actually said they look. I look like I'm going to fall asleep before I actually go out on the platform. I go into a little space. So I actually zone out. I can't hear anything. I'm tapping my foot around and just running through my technique cues stronger, faster, tighter. And usually the last thing I go out on stage is, is that I run through myself that I'm going to show everybody how strong I am. Richie Patterson. And this is Extra Time, a web-only sports program from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Joe Porter. The Warriors' National Rugby League season is at a crossroads and a win at Mount Smart this Sunday against an understrength Cowboys is vital to their top eight aspirations. Last year's grand finalists sit ninth on the ladder, just one win outside the playoff zone, but a typical NRL logjam means 14 of the 16 teams still have a chance of playing finals football. Hooker Nathan Friend returns to the side after eight weeks on the sideline with a broken jaw and his return is timely. The Auckland club lost Friend's replacement Alihana Mara to a broken leg three weeks ago, forcing utility Lewis Brown to cover the hooker's role since. The Warriors have suffered without a specialist around the ruck, but it shouldn't be a problem this weekend with Friend back in the fold. The former Titans spoke to the media at training this week about what the Warriors need to do to force their way back into the top eight, and how he's feeling heading into his first game after a frustrating two months on the sidelines. Yeah, I'm probably overprepared, you know. Um, feels good I've had about three or four contact sessions now and although it doesn't feel normal it's a bit numb but it's come through and it's not pulling up any, any sore than what it is so I'm happy. You've copped a couple on it then just to... Yeah well my first session I went out there and Steve Rapira lifted his arm up and hit it right in the spot and I was you know I shake the head a bit but um, you know I pulled up great from there and uh, I'm just happy to be out there and training full on you know it's, it's no good sitting on the sideline. Had to be a coach. How, how hard has it been for you sitting out yeah, for a big chunk of the season? Uh, well, I've been fortunate, you know, the, over the eight weeks I've, I've only missed five games because of the two buys. So uh, look at it, look at the positives there. But those five games, you know, very frustrating, especially when uh, you know we're in the lead in a couple of those, and as you know, the, you know, let them slip and you know, four points in the ladder now would have been very handy. So uh, we need to mount some pressure uh, leading into the September. 
Yeah, the team's in a bit of a dicey spot now, aren't they, with the season sort of you know, getting towards the end. You uh, haven't got as many wins as you need. We are, but you know, if, you, if, you, if you deserve your spot uh, in the eight at the end of the season, you need to probably build from now. Um, you want to be playing decent footy heading in towards there. So we don't get ahead of ourselves now. If, you know, if we do lose a couple more, then obviously we're not deserving of making the eight. So hopefully we can uh, you know, keep on improving as we have and you know, move on in. What have you seen from the sidelines in terms of where you can help the team now coming back in? Yeah, it's hard to say, you know, not being out there. It's, it's a lot different than being an armchair critic, you know. And the feedback from the boys is it's very positive out there. Things are going really well. It's just uh, some crucial parts of the game that um, you know might take the wrong option. And hopefully, me being at distribution there, I can uh, you know hopefully take the right options. Nathan, obviously you're known as an 80-minute player. Do you think you last the 80 minutes in your first set out after such a... For sure, yeah. Uh, I have no doubt, mate. I'll be training pretty hard, probably if not harder, uh, when you're in the rehab group. And um, I think I've been around long enough to uh, you know, know where to be on the field and to get through uh, you know, 80 minutes, which I've played you know, for the last six years. So I have no... Uh, you know, I mightn't be uh, at my peak for 80 minutes, but um, I'll certainly be out there for 80 uh, there's uh, five Cowboys going to be out of action, obviously origin duties for them. Does that change the way you guys approach the game? Not at all. You know, We've got to take care of our own backyard. You know, We haven't been uh, you know, 100% uh, this year in, in any game. and um, We just need to obviously get our completions right and you know, hopefully the rest will follow off for there. You know, we can't go into the game going, oh shit, you know, they're understaffed. And, you know, this is going to be a, a pushover where you know, it's just certainly not the mind frame you want to go into a game like this. And you know, Being back home and the boys like to lift for that and I think we'll be fine. Two points outside the top eight and having the Cowboys up ahead of you, it's nice to be playing a team that's above you because it stops them getting points as well if you want. Yeah, exactly. And Cowboys aren't the only team. You know, you look on and we've got Brisbane and then Manly. So, yeah, the more wins we can have against those guys and obviously the losses they have and close we get and to where we want to be in September. And, you know, it's exciting times uh, this part of the year, but it's not exciting for not the eight. There've been some of the tough losses, you know, the one point at Granada, I think Tigers away. There's been a few that have got away this season. You really can't afford to have any more of those, can you? No, not at all. Um, they're probably worse than a 30-point drumming, you know, especially when you're in a position to win the game. And, you know, you lose it yourself, not the actual team winning. So um, it's sad from that point of view. And, you know, if, you know, I don't want to think that if we're not going to make the eight, you know, don't want to think negative, but you know, if that was to happen, then you look back and you go, well, you know, there's probably a few points along along the way where we, uh, yeah, we could have easily been in the eight. Is the spirit on the team still strong? I mean, those they, they really hurt those losses, but you are still. They do. I think they make you stronger. Uh, it certainly doesn't dampen the atmosphere around here. You know, all the boys are in good spirits, and you know, I'm looking forward to a big big showing this weekend. Nathan Friend. The virtual monopoly that Sky Television seems to enjoy in sports coverage here in New Zealand came under scrutiny again recently when the Football World Cup qualifying stage held in the Solomon Islands capital, Honiara, wasn't initially broadcast by Sky. The All Whites finished a shock third place at the Oceania Nations Cup and local viewers did end up seeing that after rights holders the Oceania Football Confederation belatedly struck a deal with Sky, online pay-per-view clearly not covering the OFC's production costs. But by then, two of the five games New Zealand would play in the tournament had already taken place. Football is a perfect example of the dilemma some sporting codes face in getting TV coverage in New Zealand. Richard Wayne reports. The likes of the English Premier League, Euro 2012 and locally the Wellington Phoenix games do get airtime on Sky. 
while there's little sign of the local Premiership League or any other local football. And the final of the annual Chatham Cup knockout competition, which began back in 1923, wasn't broadcast last year here either. It's not just pay TV. Football remains practically invisible on free-to-air broadcasters here outside the nightly news shows. Sky Chief Executive John Follett says there's three tiers of sport. There's the likes of rugby, league, cricket and netball, where Sky produces the local coverage for nothing and pays the code for the rights as well. The second division involves teams like the Phoenix and the New Zealand Breakers in basketball. Follett says those sports get some rights payments, but Sky pays the cost of production, which is about $45,000 a game, much more than the rights. But those codes keep the international rights to on-sell into Australia and anywhere else. They're always playing an Australian team, which will have interest in Australia. So part of our deal is when we produce the game, we give it back to them for them to exploit international rights. We don't exploit any international rights. Then there's the third category where, geez, the interest isn't as high as the cost of production. And that could be a Chatham Cup, where uh, we would love the Chatham Cup to be the highest rated uh, event. We'd love to pay them several million dollars of the event. But at the end of the day, the, our subscribers determine the value just on how often they watch them. Sometimes that value doesn't cover the cost of the production. So it's not just where the sky wants to pay a sport to broadcast it. The cost of producing an event is a major factor too. Dave Beach is the CEO of the Auckland Triathlon World Championships, which take place in October this year. They'll be broadcast live, free-to-air, on TVNZ, with highlights on Sky. Sky's John Follett says triathlon's one of the most expensive sports to broadcast in the world. Follett says it needs two helicopters and the cost is prohibitive. Beach says they had to factor in the cost of televising the world champs into the event's budget. As part of our ITU requirements, um, the international triathlon requirements for this event, we have to broadcast the event live. So it was always a factor in our event budget that we were going to pay for the costs of producing a live television coverage of the event. If Sky were to, um, if triathlon was up there with rugby or something where they do just do it all, would that really help your sport not to have to factor in the, the budget? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, no doubt about that. And whether it was Sky or, or TVNZ or, or anyone else, I mean, that, that would, you know, for an emerging sort of tier two sport that's on a growth curve, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll hit break even one day where, you know, a network offers to cover the entire cost of producing it and screen it live for us. That would be fantastic. And then, you know, growth on from there where you get to the likes of a rugby and a netball where there's actually, you know, it's a revenue stream rather than just break even. It's a banner for all, all sport, really. Uh, if they wanted to find someone else or buy the equipment themselves and show the games and just hand us the content, well, geez, that would be a no-brainer for us. We do every one of those deals. And even pay a rights fee, and I, I doubt it would cover the cost of their production, but you know we'd be happy to do that. Which is what happened with the Nations Cup in the end, isn't it, in the Solomons? I mean, that my understanding is that they produced it and just sold it on to you in the end. That's right. So we had no production costs. And for most of the sports that we buy outside of New Zealand, that's the case. Follett says there are also linking costs with satellite transmission. For example, broadcasting a Black Caps cricket game out of Zimbabwe can cost $2,000 an hour on satellite fees. Of course, Sky's net profit for the last financial year rose to just over $120 million. Beach doesn't blame Sky at all for its pick-and-mix approach to which sports get airtime. He says it's the lack of anti-siphoning legislation to guarantee important sporting events are played live and free-to-air. They're operating completely rationally like any commercial party would in those circumstances. You now they've got a duty to their shareholders to maximise profits, and they're doing that, which is, you know, I don't have any, any issue with that at all. 
the source of the problem is actually the structure in which the sport environment is on broadcast on television, and that is there's no protection for sport on free-to-air television like there are in a lot of other jurisdictions, Australia, UK, etc. They all have anti-siphoning legislation that protects sport on free-to-air television, and there's a whole lot of good that comes out of that. One is you end up with a, a more competitive environment with the networks competing for content. You know, sports like I'm involved with, with triathlon, you then have two parties to go and talk to about distributing your content rather than one. And, and the second issue is really around in the current environment, you know, only 50% of kids are going to see live sport on, on free-to-air TV because, you know, paid television in any jurisdiction never really gets above 50 or 60% penetration into households. And that's really the issue in my mind. Yes, the, the commercial side of it and the cost of sport, particularly tier two sport of getting broadcast coverage is an issue. But the biggest social issue is that, you know, you ask any sport elite hero where they got their motivation and inspiration from, and most of them say it was some live moment they watched on TV when they were a kid. And, you know, the tragedy is that 50% of kids are not, are not going to get to see that. They talked about kids are missing out. Well, it makes a couple assumptions. One, that without television coverage, the sport doesn't grow or atrophy. And, you know, I don't think that's the case at all. When I talked to sports, they talked about, well, we need more free-to-air coverage to boost the sport. And I'd go, all right, well, tell me what sport that you envy on its growth. And typically, they name football. And yet, free-to-air soccer's uh, football association football is, the, you know, by far, every sport would be envious of their numbers and playing and, and attraction of the sport. And I can't think of any of it on free-to-air. No, football doesn't really get on yeah. free-to-air in New Zealand anymore. Yeah. And by the way, there's nothing stopping the free-to-air broadcast from, mm. from doing it. Why they have problems with sport, I think, and, and by the way, we own Prime, so I understand the dilemma they have is that, like, if you take Super 15, if you were a free-to-air broadcaster, you might be able to use one of those games a week. You certainly wouldn't want to turn your channel over a three-day weekend or a Friday, Saturday, Sunday into showing seven Super 15 games. Yeah, the ratings just wouldn't compare to a movie, would they? Kill it. It would kill it. And so consequently, they pay more. The package that includes the Desperate Housewives package is more than what we pay for the package that includes the uh, all-black test matches. So they can easily outbid. The question is they just can't maximize their revenue. They're playing a, a very good uh, strategy at the moment. You know, when you look at the test match, uh, the rugby test match in the weekend, you know, the prime coverage was an hour delayed. So, you know, it wasn't significantly delayed, but... You know, there's a case to be argued that, well, live sport is live sport, and even an hour delayed, you can, you know, find the result out and isn't quite the same for anyone watching it if it's not live. I mean, I think that the fact that some sport is on Prime is good, obviously, but, you know, you still don't get that same penetration, excitement, and uh, following as you do if it was, you know, full, free-to-air, live at the time it's happening. I'm sure Sky would also say that the free-to-air networks are welcome to bid for any sports. (laughs) Well, what would be your response to that? It's a completely fair point, and, and this is why I say this isn't a Sky issue. As I say, Sky are acting completely rationally in the environment that we're in, and TVNZ and TV3 and anyone else are completely free to, to bid and purchase that content and show. And this is why I say you know, that sport needs to hold itself to account as well in terms of creating product that is, does attract good viewership numbers and provide a good basis for, for selling advertising. That's absolutely a, a fair point. And, you know, the, the challenge is really back to, to government, I think, to look at, you know, how sport is preserved on, on free-to-air television, full stop. But Follett says that Sky actually funds sport in New Zealand. Anti-siphoning laws would cost sporting excellence, as the paid television cash wouldn't be replaced. 
it's the money that they get from pay television that is funding sport today. I would argue that New Zealand is doing better at sport than they've ever done before. I mean, the basketball uh, winning that, the World Cup for rugby, uh, I think in the Olympics we'll have... Uh, pretty confident that you're going to see more medals than, than ever before. So you can't say that the model's broken. Beach points out it would require either a much bigger population here or a big increase in government funding to match the money Sky ploughs into New Zealand sport. Oh, okay, it's absolutely valid point, and that, that point goes across more than just you know TV distribution. It's across all our key infrastructure assets. You know, we're not a big country, and you know, there's basically not enough bodies to, to pay the, the type of money we need for the, the infrastructure that we'd like to have. And there's no simple solution to that, but if you do have some anti-cycling legislation to preserve free-to-air sport, then that's when the government needs to make a decision to actually invest in helping pay for the cost of that. And that's sort of a, like a social investment, if you like, from the, the government's perspective. I think the hybrid model is the only one that works here in New Zealand, that you need the combination of pay and free-to-air. A good example is if you call cricket, we've been the only bidder for content. Yeah, part and parcel, isn't it? The, the fact that we've got 4 million people, the actual market is so, there's not enough people. Dave, perhaps part of the problem is that the environment is so restrictive in a way that the model, as we discussed, it goes to basically to Sky as the default, and if they don't do it, then no one else is going to do it either. Yeah, it's, it's exactly right, and like in any market, the, the minute you're left with one key player, over time you'll naturally develop monopoly tendencies. And as I said, the Sky acting completely rationally in that, that perspective. They've got to deliver a, a return to their shareholders, and I, I don't have any issue with that. But until there is another player in the market competing for content, that scenario is not going to change. You know, they still do a great service. They produce a great product for the sports they're involved in. And, you know, the bigger issue is how we continue to make sure that the, the more marginal sports uh, get coverage and also that the, the key sports are seen by those, you know, 50% of households without pay TV, you know, commercial issues aside, it's just making sure those kids really get inspired by their national heroes. Richard Wayne reporting. And that's the show for this week. Feedback is welcome via sport at radionz.co.nz. You can get the latest sports news anytime on our website, while we'll be back with the next web-only Extra Time show next week. I'm Joe Porter. Bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.